Our passage this morning is found in Exodus chapter 20, excuse me, uh, verses 1 to 17. Uh, If you don't have a Bible this morning, uh, you can throw up your hand. One of our uh, ushers will bring one to you. If you don't have a Bible in your life, feel free to keep that and, uh, and take it home with you. As I said, our passage is in Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 to 17. Hear the word of the Lord. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. You or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God has given you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. Well, good afternoon. Uh, if, if one of us, again, slips in a good morning, uh, we apologize. It is not the morning. It is certainly the afternoon. Although for some of us, maybe if you do uh, a, a morning shift or of work or what, if you're working nights, maybe this is your morning. So uh, we can say good morning to you. But it's good to be here. It's good to be at uh, Crestwick. We're thankful to them for uh, allowing us to use their space today so that we could celebrate some baptisms. Well, I have yet to engage in uh, relationships with people where if I avoided the expectations conversation, the relationship went super well. Do you know what I'm saying? Like when you are in relationship with somebody else, this can be a friendship, this can, especially in marriage, there comes a point where you kind of have to define the relationship and you have to, in many ways, describe to one another what your expectations are in the relationship. Let's just even begin with friendship, for example. Uh, Maybe this could have been an early on friendship. You were best friends early on in school and and you start kind of hanging out a little bit and it's like, do you want to come over? You're like, wow, they're really like... Yeah, I, I want to come over. That, that's a point of a, of a relationship. That's a big marker. Maybe then it's a sleepover. It's like, okay, we're, we're becoming like even better friends now. You go a little bit further. As you get a little bit older in life, uh, maybe college, university age, you meet new people. And at somewhere along the line, some people have that define the relationship conversation. Like, are we good friends or are we 
best friends. Or maybe you've had somebody like pull the best friend card on you and you were like, whew, I don't feel the same way. Like I'm their best friend, but they're not my best friend. And then you're trying to figure out how do we even like live in relationship with one another if they're expecting more of me than I'm expecting of them. And then you have marriage, and in marriage, you will hear on someone's wedding day, and it's always so romantic, right? And people are standing there, and the guy and the girl, they're professing their love for each other, and they're like, I'm going to make you the happiest person in the entire world. And in some ways, I want to stand up and be like, liar, because you know if you've been married that you can have days where you make them the happiest person in the world, but you will have other days where you will make the most upset person in the entire world. Uh, Andre and I actually had a moment like this over the last 24 hours where it was like, sweetie, I love you a lot, but you also drive me insane. And we're able to be honest with one another about this. When you go to a wedding, typically people have their vows and they express their vows to one another uh, and they commit till death do us part. We've all heard those before. Now, these are beautiful vows. Many of us like hearing them. But those vows represent an enormous amount of expectations, details to how are you actually going to love me in sickness and in health? Like, how are you actually going to do that? Like, if if Andrea gets sick, does that mean I'm going to uh, bring her soup? Does that mean I'm going to make her tea? Like, what are the specifics? And then what is she expecting of me? Like, when she gets sick, does she expect that I'll take care of the kids and do the tea? Like, you would think. Like, of course, Natalie. That's amazing. But if we never talk about our expectations, and I think what happens and what where really our relationships begin to break down is that when we don't actually express our expectations to one another, right? You maybe have these expectations of other people. Maybe you even have these expectations of God. Well, welcome to Exodus 20 to 24. And many people, when they get to this part of the Bible, when they get to Leviticus, they go, I'm out of here. Or maybe you're, you're this year, you're like, you've set out January 1st, Bible in a year, reading plan, you're jumping into Genesis, you're loving it. But what happens to so many people is they get to some of the intricate details of Exodus, Deuteronomy, and the law, and then they get to Leviticus, and they're just lost. They're like, what is this all about? This, this doesn't, doesn't seem to apply to me at all. And if you were to have uh, created the sermon outline, which I did for this entire series, you get to the passages we're at today, you read them through, and you kind of go, where are we going to go with this one? Like, what do we really say? Here is the purpose, and what we need to just say right off the bat about this. God is giving his people his expectations. God is defining for his people what it looks like to operate in relationship with him. You see, in the very beginning of the scriptures in Genesis, God makes a promise to a man named Abraham. And he says, Abraham, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make you a nation. Look at the sky, Abraham. See all those stars. That's how many descendants you're eventually going to have. And then we follow the storyline of, of Abraham's descendants and things look bad. They end up being, being enslaved. And then at the beginning of Exodus, we see God directing his people out of slavery, freeing them from their slavery. It's kind of the big epic story that many of us know. And then in Exodus, you get part way in chapter 19, and God's people are now out of Egypt, and they're at this mountain, and God appears for them on the mountain. The mountain is shaking. They're freaking out. If anybody touches the mountain, they'll die. Like, it's a crazy passage. 
And then God gives them some direction. And this is what he says to Moses, who is God's people. He says in Exodus 19, verses 3 to 6, The Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel. So God is giving Moses directions that he is then to go tell the people of Israel. This is what he's to say. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all of the earth is mine." And you shall be me to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So God sets up for Moses here a little bit of, of that expectation conversation of, Moses, I'm about to give you a number of commands. I'm about to define the relationship in a really detailed way for the purpose of three things. The first purpose is that my glory will be displayed through you and the people. That, that my fame, the importance of me, would be displayed through you, my people. Secondly, that Israel will be shaped into a nation that displays justice and generosity. That you will be a nation that displays justice and generosity. And then thirdly, that I want to shape you into a nation that you're going to look different than everybody else around you. I want you to be set apart. So, Let's back up a little bit. Here's a little bit of the way that I understand the law as I understand specifically these chapters. From a 10,000 foot view, imagine we're to like jump up 10,000 feet to this passage and to the surrounding chapters. This is what it's all about. And, and, And Pastor James touched on it last week. This is about loving God and loving others. This is about loving God vertically. Like what does it look like to live in relationship with a perfect and holy God? that we're to love God, and then we're to love other peoples horizontally. But then if we're to get a little bit closer to this passage and to these chapters, we go to the 5,000-foot view. And the 5,000-foot view is what Kyle read to us. It's the Ten Commandments. It's more detailed instructions in two groups of how to love God and then to love other people. You can, just, you can actually split the Ten Commandments into those two categories. This is how you enter into and have a great relationship with God. And this is how you enter in and have great relationships with other people. But then if we're to get down on the ground in the weeds, <laughs> what you see is all of the little intricate details of how do you love God and how do you specifically love other people. Like, what does it actually look like in detailed day-to-day life? Now, this is where a lot of people get lost. As I said, many of us are reading through the Bible. We get to these chapters. We get to these uh, books, and we're like, I'm out of here. And we say, this stuff doesn't matter. And we actually avoid the Old Testament altogether. We're like, we're part of the New Covenant. Jesus has come. Let's read the Gospels. Let's read the letters. Let's not even worry about the Old Testament. But here's the problem. Jesus quotes the Old Testament constantly. One, okay. Two, God, the Father, is on display in the Old Testament in really, really unique ways. Two. Three, this is the history of people that have followed this God. So it's really important for us to know what's the history because we eventually come from this history. Like, what, are the, what is the history of this God and his relationship with his people? 
But then we also get introduced in, in a fourth way to the character of this Father God. So what I want to do this morning, because we could go through line by line, and I could describe all of the little things, and that would be just like a theology class on Exodus 20 to 24. We're not going to do that. What we're going to do is we're going to go 2,000 feet. All right? We're going to go 2,000 feet off the ground and talk about what we can actually learn about God from these few chapters that I think are really, really important because as they're applicable back then, they're the same things that are still applicable in the here and the now. How does that sound? Does that sound off the ground enough that we're going to hopefully like, move along here together in a helpful way? Yes? Okay, good. There's no other option. So I appreciate the fact that you're following along with me here. So let's start. Point number one that we need to grab from these few chapters is that God cares about the details. He is extremely detail-oriented. Like if you just read line by line through these chapters, you're going to go like, God, like you care about that? Really? That God? God loves the details. Some of you in this room, you hate the details. You're like, I just, big picture. I'm a little bit that way. I like big picture stuff. The intricate details, not so much. Like other people, they like the intricate details. I'm, I'm, I'm off the ground kind of guy. Where are we going? You can, other people can help in the process of getting us there. That's where James is especially gifted. Praise the Lord for James. But what these chapters want to show us is that God is extremely interested in the details of your life. Some of us maybe feel in, in some ways like something's happening in your life and you're like, God would never care about that. Be quiet. God cares so much about that. He cares about how you engage, how you spend your time. He cares about the things you watch on television. He cares about your relationships. He cares about that test or exam. He cares about your neighbors. He cares about the way you mow your lawn. It's his world. He loves the details of your life because he's your father. Like, I love the details of my little boys' lives because I'm their father. I'm extremely detail-oriented when it comes to my kids. Like Nixon the other day said one of the cutest things he's probably ever said. He, 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 Andre thought he was looking extra cute. He was sitting at the island, and uh, Andre said, you know what, Nixon, you're looking really handsome today. And he stopped and looked over at her in his, like, 27-month-year-old mindset and was like, yeah, jazz cut, cut it. Jazz is Andre's sister who cuts his hair. So he's already thinking, like, yeah, I'm looking good. It's because Jazz cut my hair. Like, I, I, I like that. Some of you are like, that is, like, just really silly. That's cute, but, like, who cares? I'm his father, so I intricately care about the details of his life. And God cares so much about his children's lives. But God also cares about the physical earth and all of its details. Here's Psalm 19, verse 1. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. God also cares about every single human being and their, and their form. Psalm 139 says, For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. Jeremiah 1, verse 5. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. God knows you better than you know yourself. God knows you far more than any other human being on this earth will ever know you. He cares about the details of your life. Isn't that incredible? Like, just think about that. The God who created all that is, all that there is, if there is one, okay, I'm on the side that there is, 
if there is one, he cares about you. He cares about your, the details of your life. Like, that's mind-boggling, and he wants to be in relationship with you. That's crazy. Secondly, what these chapters tell us is that God cares deeply about the value of every human life because every human being is made in his image. So right off the bat, Christians, we need to care about the value of every single human life. Not just the ones that we prefer to care about. Let's look at some examples from these passages. How about slaves? Exodus 21, verses 2 to 3. When you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve six years, and in the seventh he shall go out free for nothing. If he comes in single, he shall go out single. If he comes in married, then his wife shall go out with him. Now, some of us are like, slavery, the Bible, this is a different historically context. This is completely different than the understanding of slavery that we now have nowadays. Slaves in this culture are more like contract workers. And so slavery is voluntary, it's temporary, it's civil, it's not oppressive nor racially based, and it has preserved the sanctity of the family. So when God is giving instruction, he's speaking to a culture in which slavery is different, and he's looking out for the value of the people that are are being employed. So if you're an employer or if you are being employed, God cares deeply about the ways in which you are employed and which the way that you employ others. Do people have rights? Do people have good vacation time? Are people compensated in the ways that they should be? These are all things that God cares deeply about. How about women? Exodus 21, verses 7 to 9. Again, there's some context here. I'll read you the verses. When a man sells his daughter as a slave... Yeah, she shall not go out as the male slaves do. If she does not please her master who has designated her to himself, then he shall let her be redeemed. He shall have no right to sell her to a foreign people since he has broken faith with her. If he designates her for his son, he shall deal with her as with his daughter. So we could just spend like 40 minutes directly on this, but here's some historical context. If a father was selling his daughter, it was for the purpose of her well-being and her economical gain. So I'm selling my daughter, I'm going to sell her to a family where she could actually get ahead in life. Because if she remains in my own, remember a contract worker, she actually could get further ahead. So what God is actually deeply showing us here is that God cares for women physically and emotionally, and he expects men to defend them and to treat them lovingly and with care. That's what God is is showing us right here in the pages of Exodus. Women, can I not get an amen? Amen. Men, treat them well. They are God's daughters. How about the unborn? Posted this one on Facebook. Maybe some of you saw it. Exodus 21, verse 22. When men strive together and hit a pregnant woman so that her children come out, but there is no harm, the one who hit her shall surely be fined as the woman's husband shall impose on him, and he shall pay as the judges determine. Again, we could spend more time, but notice this. The unborn child is considered a human being which displays God's heart for the unborn. Mother and child, as displayed here, are both valuable. Isn't that amazing? Exodus, coming to life. How about the refugee, widow, orphan, and economically marginalized, or the poor? 
Exodus 22, verses 21 to 25. You shall not wrong a sojourner that's an alien to your country or oppress him, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. So don't oppress somebody who's an alien to your country because you were at one point an alien to another country. You shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. If you mistreat them and they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry and my wrath will burn. This is, okay, it's getting a little bit intense here. And I will kill you with the sword and your wives shall become widows and your children fatherless. If you lend money to any of my people with, with you who is poor, you shall not be like a money lender to him and you shall not exact interest from him. Notice what God is telling us. God cares deeply for the down and out and identifies with the powerless, which is one, those he mentions here, but also you and with me. Because at one point we were the refugees. We are aliens to a perfect holy God. So God is saying, do you notice what's happening here? I mean, if you follow American politics at all, God seems to be displaying that he's both for the unborn, but he's also for the refugee. He's for everybody because he cares deeply of the value of every single human life because every single human life is created in his image. How about enemies? Exodus 23, verses 4 to 5. If you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, let's maybe, some of you guys are dog people. I'm not. If you meet your enemy's dog or his donkey has gone astray, you shall bring it back to him. If you see the dog, donkey, of one who hates you lying down under its burden, you shall refrain from leaving him with it. You shall rescue it with him. What is God telling us about enemies? God cares about every human being even if they're not your neighbor. We are to treat them as we want to be treated. Why? Because at one point, you and I were enemies of God. Yet he goes towards us and welcomes us in. This is the God we're being introduced to in the pages of Exodus. How about number three? This is what we need to know. God is just, all right? And therefore, justice is to be served. As it relates to restitution and restoration, this is what Exodus 22, verse 5. If a man causes a field or vineyard to be grazed over or lets his beast loose and it feeds in another man's field, he shall make restitution from the best in his own field and in his own vineyard. This is what God's trying to tell us, okay? Because some of you are like, ox in my vineyard, what do I do with this? Offenders had to deal face-to-face with the offended. They had to generously compensate the victim. Face-to-face. Notice what we do in our culture now. If someone hurts you, you try to avoid them at all costs. God says, confront. Confront the one that has offended you. The underlying principle of all of these things on restitution and restoration is that the punishment should fit the crime. Wrongdoers would be protected by examining their intent. There was a life-for-life principle which shows the value of human life and its sanctity because humanity bears the image of God. Ultimately, God's goal in all of these laws is for justice to be served. You see, God's not saying to his people, because you're my people, you can get off of having to serve if you've done something wrong. He's saying, no, my people, just like the other nations surrounding them, have to understand what is just and what is not, and that justice must be served because he's a just God. How about holiness? Exodus 22, verse 16. If a man seduces a virgin who is not betrothed and lies with her, he shall give the bride price for her and make her his wife. 
What's God saying here? God is once again caring for the rights of women in this culture and holding the man responsible for his sin. Let's apply this to our own culture. Men, you're trying to lure in a lady. You believe that, you know, what can I do to get her to send me and expose pictures of herself to me? Which is now what lots of people are doing. It's commonplace now. It's not like, oh, that's just the, uh, the random relationships. No, that's what's happening. That's how you start developing relationships with people now. So I'll seduce her. I'll send her a picture of myself. I'll get her to send a picture of me or of herself to me. Look what I got now. I'm going to expose this picture to the watching world. What God says, if you seduce her, you're now responsible for her. Men, don't seduce unless you're willing to be responsible for them. Don't play around with women's emotions and flirt and draw them into relationship and then treat them as if they're an object and some sort of thing that is not to be valued. When you approach a woman, do it with respect, understanding the consequences of your actions. You see what God is saying here? He's holy, he's perfect, and he's calling his own people to that holy and perfect standard because he wants us to display to the watching world who he is because we bear his image. And then fourthly, God cares deeply about how he is worshipped. Exodus 20, verses 24 to 25. An altar of earth you shall make for me and sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and your peace offerings, your sheep and your oxen in every place where I cause my name to be remembered. I will come to you and bless you. If you make me an altar of stone, you shall not build it of hewn stones, for you wield your tool on it and you profane it. What's going on here? Well, counter to the other religions in that day that surrounded Israel, they made much of their gods and their altars through craftsmanship. So this is the principle. All these surrounding nations are making a big deal of their altars. They're making these beautiful altars as they worship their own gods that are lesser gods. And essentially what they're trying to do is like, look at us and look at the gods. It's kind of like sometimes in our own culture where we build these incredibly elaborate church buildings. And we're like, look at God. But wait, look at this first. God is saying deeply, do not distract from who I am. You want to make much of me? Great. Make much of me. Don't make much of yourselves. God cares deeply about how we enter into relationship with him and how we make much of him. We need to be thinking regularly, and you, you can be encouraged. I believe we're doing this at Church, Church of the City. Straight, thinking very, in very helpful ways. How are we presenting God when we gather together on Sundays? And how are we presenting God when we're gathering together in our missional communities? Are people coming into an understanding of who this God is? Or are they coming into this God that we've created? Because we deeply want people to be introduced to Jesus and the display of who he is and not the Jesus that sometimes we make in our own images. And if you're here today and you have maybe, you're, you're, you're not really into the Christian thing, because of this, we are sorry. We are sorry if you have ever been introduced to a false image of the one that we say we worship and proclaim. 
we stand as the church, God's bride, understanding that we fall short. But we want to deeply care about the way in which God wants and desires to be worshipped. Now you might be saying, okay, four great points about God, but why does all this matter? Well, let's be reminded, God's glory is to be displayed through his people, which is you and me. Two, God's character is to be displayed through his people specifically in justice and in generosity. And then thirdly, God's people are to look different than the surrounding world. We are to handle restoration, restitution, and justice differently. Now, as we listen to these things, some of us, and and many people, they feel as they hear all of these different laws, they're, they're stuck under a weight. Right? Like, if you've ever had that define the relationship talk, you naturally leave the conversation going, Ugh! This is going to be hard. Every single romantic relationship and friendship relationship goes through this, like, infatuation phase where it's like, this person is amazing. They are like God's gift to humanity. Not just my school, humanity. They're beautiful. Uh, probably, like, so much so on the inside, but even more so on the outside. They can do no wrong. And then every relationship hits that point of conflict where it's like, whoa, I didn't see this one coming. And you make a decision at that point. You say, I'm out. Or you engage and you say, I'm in. But you recognize when you say, I'm in, that it's really, really, really hard And usually that's the point where it's like, listen, I just, I'm not, I'm comfortable with this in your life. What do you mean you're not comfortable with that in my life? This is my life. Who do you think you are? I'm the person you're entering into relationship with. Don't you think I should have a say? You see how that gets complicated? Like everybody's so quickly wanting to get into a dating relationship and they forget that an actual relationship has to come out of it. I think God's direction here when he's talking about trying to seduce people is like, if you want to get into a relationship, be ready to get into a relationship. If you're willing to ask somebody out, be willing to break up with them too. (laughs) Guys, if you felt it was easy to get into the relationship, you also have to be willing to get out of the relationship. It's a whole lot easier to woo because you look great. It's a whole lot harder to break someone's heart. But if you're a man enough to get into it, you've got to be man enough to get out of it. Now, here's the problem with all of these expectations and the weight. <laughs> here's the reality. We are all lawbreakers, and God is holy and has holy standards for his covenant people. We're all lawbreakers. And some of you are like, what are you, what are you talking about? Like, I obey the rules really, really well. Yeah, but get this. God just doesn't see your outside. He sees your inside and he sees the prideful heart that's doing all of the right things out of selfish intentions and motives. And he says, you're offside too. So it's not enough to do good things. You have to do good things from a heart that's been changed by what he has done for you. And every single one of us in this room are lawbreakers. Every single one of us in this room should be reading this and go, I can't measure up. And what we see in the story of Exodus is a few chapters later, the children of Israel can't measure up. 
they actually begin to take some of these laws given and they begin worshiping a golden calf that they've created. This is the people that saw God part the Red Sea. This is the people that saw God in a cloud descend on a mountain and it was trembling like an earthquake. And they're suddenly like, let's go like take all of our gold and make this really sweet calf out of it and let's use all the ways that we're to worship God and worship ourselves, essentially. Because we're all lawbreakers. None of us measure up. No matter who you think you are, no matter how many people you think you fooled, God sees your heart. And this is the incredibly pessimistic reality of Christianity. You're a lawbreaker. I'm a lawbreaker. We're all lawbreakers. But get this, we're all in the same playing field now. So you can't walk up to somebody and be like, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm something. Or even pretend like you're something. Like look down on people with your eyes. Like, you can just do studies on, like, nonverbal communication. And you hurt people with your nonverbal communication. And then you find out somebody's gotten hurt. And you're like, I didn't even say anything. Yeah, but it's the way you looked at them. Because, but God sees that. He sees your heart. And we're all lawbreakers. And God is holy. And has holy standards. And he's just. Which means that all of us should live apart from him forever because he's a perfect, holy, and just God. You see, what prevents people, one, from understanding the good news of Jesus is, is one, their sin and their tendency and their slavery to the sin. But then on the other side is a group of people that believe they're holy and good. And that will keep them from understanding the good news of Jesus just as much as the other side. So here's what we all need to hear because God could have at this point said, you messed it up, I gave you the specifics, I gave you the details, I actually laid it out really plainly for you, and you messed up. Peace. God goes, creates another thing somewhere else. We don't know about that. He just exits the scene. But he does something radical. He says, I've created a people, and this people was designed and created to worship me, but they've chosen to walk in the other direction and honor and worship themselves. And rather than walking away, I'm going to walk back in. It's like in that relationship after infatuation, you get to reality. And some of you have been in relationships over and over and over again. People keep leaving. And so this God that says, no, I'm going to keep coming. You don't really understand it. Like, what do you mean? Maybe you're sitting in a relationship right now, a marital relationship, and you don't know if they're going to stay or go. You don't know if it's till death do us part. So the idea of a God that actually says forever to you is like, no, can't do it. That triggers an aspect of me. It's unhealthy. But this is what we need to understand is the truth that shakes the world that should shake the world and should shake each and every single one of us and is shaken the three people that are going to get up before all of us in a few minutes and say, I believe that good news. And I want people to know it. Not just us here, but I want the world to know it. And this is that truth. Here's the solution. Is that God the Father sends Jesus, his son, God himself, to save us. To live the life we could not live and die the death we should have died as our Savior and lead us as our King in a new direction with the indwelling, empowering presence of the Holy Spirit. 
This is the good news of Jesus. That we're all lawbreakers, that none of us measure up, whether it's from righteous, prideful activity or from its broken, sinful activity. But the prideful activity is just as sinful as the other stuff. That that is enough to keep us away from a perfect, holy God. And God says, no, I'm not going to enter. Exit. I'm going to enter back in. I'm going to enter myself back in, in my son, Jesus. He's going to come to the earth, live the perfect life that you never could live, and then die in your place, be your substitute, have this enormous exchange happen so that you can spend eternity with me in perfect relationship. Oh, and by the way, I'm not just going to declare you perfect. I'm also going to give you myself, my Holy Spirit, who's going to come and live inside of you, and it's going to empower you to live in completely different ways. Some of us are sitting here, and we believe the good news of the gospel, but we don't believe about the indwelling, empowering presence of the Holy Spirit. And you live your life, and you're like, yeah, the truths are good, but you don't have an ongoing relationship with God. You don't know about his inner workings of of him in your life. The Holy Spirit is there, but you're quenching the Holy Spirit. Andrea and I got Cade, uh, this book, Halfway Herbert, by Francis Chan for Christmas. And Halfway Herbert is the story of a boy named Herbert who does everything halfway. He only brushes half of his teeth. He only um, does half of his schoolwork when he's playing a soccer game. He kind of pays attention for part of the game, but then half of the time he kind of like looks at the butterflies And then this one day, Herbert decides to go on his bicycle, and he only does up one of his shoes, and the other one's undone. And he gets on his bicycle, only goes up halfway up the hill, and he goes down, and his shoelace gets caught in in the mechanics of the bike. You can all understand. And he runs into his dad's car. And then his dad comes out and sees this dent in his car, and he says, Herbert, what happened here? And Herbert, halfway telling the truth, halfway lying, says, "Uh, I didn't see anyone run into your car, because his eyes were closed when he ran into it. Well, Mr. Rugg, the next-door neighbor, calls and says, hey, is Herbert okay? I saw him run into your car. And then you get like this, like, boom, in this book, like this little children's book. You're like, he's caught. And then the father... The father, like, engages the son and is like, hey, hey, Herbert, like, you lied to me. What's that all about? And they have this incredible dialogue about what Jesus calls us to and so on and so forth. And then he says, Herbert, um, did you know that God gives us his spirit that helps us do things not halfway, but whole ways? And that you'll continue to mess up, but that God gives us his spirit so that you don't have to do things halfway, but you can do things all the way? And Herbert's like, no, and he's filled with that shame. And then his dad continues to press in and say, no, no, he can, he can do this in you. You can be different, Herbert. You don't have to live your life this way. And then Herbert says a prayer. And you read this prayer. It's like, God, I just need your strength every single day. And then he's not halfway Herbert anymore. He's all the way Herbert. And his whole hair is done, not just half of it. He brushes both ends of his mouth for his teeth. He doesn't have cavities anymore. It's a beautiful little story. The point being is that God just doesn't save you. He then empowers you. And he says, I don't just want you to now just go and do it because I've made a way. I want you to do it with me. And this is what we talked about all Advent season when it comes to our relationships with God. That God sent Jesus so that he could live in relationship with you and with me. And he's made a way through his son, Jesus Christ. And that's what this Exodus text is trying to show us. You can't do it on your own. 
And it's a good thing that it's a covenant and not a contract because a covenant is unending, it's unbinding, it's unbreaking. A contract says, as soon as you cross me, you're done. Covenant's forever. And we serve a covenant God forever. Love this quote from Charles Spurgeon. Be ever one of those whose manners are Christian, whose speech is like Jesus, whose conduct and conversation are so reminiscent of heaven that all who see you may know that you are the Savior's, recognizing in you his features of love and countenance and holiness. Be ever one of those whose manners are Christian. You see, we're to look differently. We're to lead the world in justice and generosity. And we're to display his glory. But we can't do that alone. We have to do that through the power of his spirit. And he makes that possible through his son, Jesus. You need to believe that. You need to believe that. Because if you don't, this is still a just God and you're still a lawbreaker. But he's made a way for lawbreakers like all of us to enter into perfect relationship. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this time. God, I pray that we would recognize the depth of our brokenness, the depth of our law-breaking, and that you would show us, God, what it means to be in relationship with a perfect and just and holy God, and that that would change things. Thank you, God, that today we're going to get to experience that with three people who have declared that. God, I pray uh, that, that today, God, if there's anyone in this room... They maybe have said that they believe that good news, but God, you are not fooled. God, you say faith without works is dead. So as we put our faith in the gospel, God, may it change our conduct. May it change our living. God, I pray that we would stand now and that we would sing, thanking this incredible God who loves us perfectly, that has entered into relationship with us, not because of anything in us, but because of purely who you are. God, may we in our worship, not worship the people that are playing, not even worship the the way that they play their notes, but God, that we would purely just worship you. May we not be distracted. Remind us of who you are. God, I'm so excited that we get to be here together and we get to do that. Thank you. Amen.